if you hire somebody who's lockstep with you in the vision of where the company is going in the process and the whole interview scheme is not going to be built around how does the numbers match up but it's going to be built around where do you see the company going what's the vision how much are you lockstep with us and sharing the load to get to the vision versus just making sure the books are correct yes they need to be correct but you know there's different ways to do it and you know where the emphasis is on growing the company or on that kind of stuff so if you hire the right CFO based on that mindset and the cultural fit with the executive team and the company vision you're going to be fine but if you hire a CFO just because of his financial expertise and not necessarily because he's a good fit for the company that's not going to work well Hi, I'm Danny and I'm Nicole. Welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast where we explore the connection between company spending and culture. Join us as we dive deep into understanding the people, processes and tools that make up spend as a whole or what we call spend culture. Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of Spend Culture Stories. Today we have a really special guest for everyone today. Um his name is Roy Stein and he's the founder and CEO of Babelbark. So Babelbark is a comprehensive software platform with mobile applications, intelligent cloud analytics, and marketing tools that connects owners, their dogs, veterinarians and vendors in a comprehensive and completely integrated solution. Now Roy is also a serial entrepreneur and former executive in companies ranging in size from public corporations with thousands of employees to idea and seed stage startups. And so he has a proven track record in building businesses and turning a problem or company around. And you know like I'm a dog lover myself so I definitely have a soft spot for CEOs who have founded um you know companies that have to do with pets so I would like to welcome Roy and thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much Danny and it's uh, my pleasure and my honor. Yeah, for sure. So maybe we can start off right away with um a little bit more about Babel Bark and how did you find the company and why the pet space. So the story behind founding the company bill my business partner and myself we've been together for nearly 15 years we've done several companies prior to this one uh, together when the former company was acquired back in november of 2014 we were looking to go on vacation and we were worried about who will take care of the dogs and how would we know that the dogs are taken care of in a good way mm-hmm. we looked at the market and there were dozens of apps back then if not hundreds you know each one great companies by themselves but they were doing small verticals and different subsectors of the market so just grooming just dog walking just dog sitting and and so forth yeah but if we wanted to get a full blown picture of what's going on we couldn't because there was nothing that coordinated everything and in this day and age where platforms are the name of the game and you go to expedia to get a holistic experience for travel you go to reddit to get a lot of media and so forth and so forth it didn't make sense to us there's no platform in the pet world so we set out to build it and that was the idea behind babelbark and that developed to be the world's first holistic platform that concentrates and aggregates 
everybody and everything in the pet world in one place. We do not supply any single service ourselves. We're not veterinarians, we're not dog walkers, we're not groomers, we're not pet stores. But we enable all of the service providers to play nice together in one platform so that they can share data. The pet parent has a one-stop shop, exactly like you go on Expedia to book a flight on, I don't know, United or Air Canada or JetBlue or whomever. And then uh, you also have your hotel of choice out of anyone offered over there and your rental car of choice and so forth. You go the same on Bubble Bark, or you can connect to your vet, to your groomer, to your pet parent, to your trainer, to your pet store, with the food of your choice, with the medications that you need, everything in one place. That's awesome. Yeah, I can see why um, this would be something really hard for pet owners to do. You know, you have to really make sure you trust the places that you're evaluating, make sure that the vendors are ones that you would trust them with the pet. So I think like having one place to access all of the needs is such a smart idea. Thank you. Yeah. So I know you've also started other companies besides Babel Bark and also obviously held some key roles in other companies. So maybe if you can tell me a little bit more about what was life before Babel Bark. You know, it wasn't your first rodeo, right? So what have you learned from founding those companies? I'll tell you that both Bill and I, we started our careers in large multi-billion dollar organizations. Mm -hmm. And then we moved to the startup world. And I would say the biggest difference between being in corporate America versus being in startups is that in the big corporate world, if you go outside the line and you think outside the box, you're going to get slapped. But in the startup world, if you don't go outside the line and if you don't think outside of the box, you're going to get slapped. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a very, you know, it's, it's completely contradictory one to the other. And that's what we love about the startups, because if you have that kind of bug of, of trying to do something new or thinking outside the box of challenging the envelope, of not being afraid to fall, startups is the way to go. In the other companies, we did three startups prior to this. The first one we didn't found, we were employees in, that, but we joined very, very early on. It went from 29 employees to a height of 500 employees, and it ended up being um, sold to a uh, larger organization. That was our first startup kind of foray, uh, and we learned a lot about how startups work, what not to do. We learned a lot what not to do and what to do. And then we founded two other companies. One was sold, one didn't make it, but, you know, not a bad roadmap as, you know, uh, background as stuff go. And what I can say is what we learned along the way is two golden rules, in my opinion. The first one is not to be blinded by the love of the product or the idea. I mean, Mm -hmm. we need to keep an eye on the market. We need to keep a very keen ear and listen to what the market is telling us. We need to pivot or adapt or whatever to whatever the market is telling us. If you're too obsessed with your own product and idea and you don't listen to what the market is telling you, you're not going to survive because your idea is yours. It's great, but it's not necessarily what people are willing to buy and pay for. So that's kind of the first thing we learned. The second one that we learned is that we're not rich enough to pay cheap. By that, I mean hire people by talent, don't hire by cost. You know, if a top-notch, I don't know, let's say system architect, if a top-notch system architect costs you a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year, take it. If you're going to go cheap and, you know, take somebody for 150,000 or 140,000 or whatever, for the sake of example, you might save, you think, 
several tens of thousands of dollars, you're going to pay twice because the product is going to be way more buggy and the time to market is going to be way longer and the issues along the way are going to be way harder to solve. So when you don't have a lot of money, don't be cheap because you're going to end up paying twice. That's really, really good advice. And I think like, you know, a lot of startup founders in the beginning, you know, they try to start small, right? They try to make sure that they're saving on costs. But I think, as you mentioned, personnel is one of the things will, it will take your company really far and from zero to one. And I love how you mentioned don't, not being too attached to the product. because they think that's something that a lot of people end up getting lost in where they think it's the greatest idea in the world, but if there's no need for it, then, you know, what's the point, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And how many team members do you have right now at Babelbark? 16. We are a work-from-home company. We have 16 employees across um, 12 states in the United States, from uh, New Hampshire and Massachusetts, all the way down to New Orleans, from Texas to oh, wow. Colorado, and you know uh, Kansas, Missouri, uh, Washington State, across the U.S. So you guys are already used to the work-from-home culture, even regardless of the pandemic. For the last 10 years, I find that two reasons why we're doing it. First of all, it's a lot cheaper than having an office. Yeah. Secondly, and more importantly, it allows you to hire people by talent and not by geography. In any place that you want to set up a shop, Toronto, Vancouver, Washington, San Francisco, Boston, wherever, you're basically limited by the people who are in that uh, geography and by your competition, the other companies that are hiring in that location. If Amazon opens up a, a local uh, shop in your area, you're in trouble because you can't compete with their prices and they're going to take all the good people. So by the fact that we are hiring working from home, it doesn't matter where that person is. If they live in Texas, in Missouri, in Silicon Valley, or in the middle of New York, if that person meets the culture of the company and meets the talent request of the company, we're able to hire them because there's no limitation. And in today's day and age, with all of the online tools like Slack and Zoom and so forth, you really don't need to have an office because people can interact just as well and whiteboard just as well over virtual systems. Yeah, I love that. And I think like, you know, this whole coronavirus situation is really opening a lot of founders eyes to that, especially the more traditional ones, right, where they think you got to go into the office to get stuff done. But now they're realizing yeah. that it's still just as productive and innovative. Yep, exactly. I mean, I think it was Twitter that announced last week that they are going to extend the work from home uh, for the time being, and they're giving $1,000, I believe, if I remember the article, $1,000 to every employee to you know buy their home station and stuff like that. But you know, they're extending the work from home and not going back to the campus. I love that. You know, that's so like forward thinking. I think that's really the future of where everybody's going to start going towards. Yes. As this is a podcast that, you know, focuses on the stories and intricacies when people spending and organizations meet, I'm really curious on hearing your fundraising story. Obviously, the first round of funding is always something that's very hard for a lot of founders. So can you tell me a little bit more about your 9.5 million raise and how you got there? Yeah, we did that over um, two rounds, seed and A, and it's all from angels, high net worth individuals and family offices. So we started out in a very classic way with a convertible note way back mm -hmm. when in 2016, because the company didn't really have a market value. And instead of getting into a lot of back and forth between investors and us about is the company worth 3 million or 5 million or 4.1 million or whatever, 
we put together a convertible note. We wanted to raise um, a small amount of money, and we said you know, several hundreds of thousands of dollars, and we said we're going to give you a 20% discount on the value of the shares in the first round that will happen, and we capped the note at a certain valuation. So the initial investors who took the highest risk of all had a predefined cap in the value of the company plus a discount. So that's how we got our first several hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then about seven, eight months later, when we had a proof of concept and we had people already willing to use it, all that kind of stuff, we raised the series seed based on angels. And we used the same, we went to the same high net worth individuals who gave us the initial convertible note. And, you know, through them, we expanded the network of their friends and people they knew. And that's how we put kind of, you know, check sizes ranging from, you know, tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of dollars together. And we did a 1.6 million series seed. And then two years later, when we went to do the series A, we went back to the same investors and they say, okay, who else do you know? How else can we expand it? And again, through that network effect, we added a few family offices and some of the same investors came in again, some with seven figure checks, but we added uh, more family offices and more high net worth individuals. And that's how we got to the bigger round. And then it's kind of snowball effect of how it uh, rolls forward. That's always really awesome to see uh, with the same investors coming in. It truly means, you know, they believe in the vision of what you guys are creating and how you're helping, you know, pets around the world. Thank you very much. Uh, that's so true because the first thing an investor in any round will ask you is, has former investors invested in this round as well? And if the answer is no, then it's like, okay, what do they see that we don't? Why are they not coming in again? It doesn't mean that all your investors need to invest again, but at least some need to be pitching in. Totally. And uh, what are some of the things that investors look for when they are um, considering pitching into your product? So it depends on what stage. I would say in the initial stage, it's more of the big idea. And mm -hmm. I think it's about the team because especially initially, every sophisticated investor knows that the idea is going to evolve and develop over time, right? I mean, every startup from, the, from your first lightning strike idea to what the actual product is, it's, it's going to take time. Even look at huge companies like Apple and, and Facebook. People forget, but Apple went nearly bankrupt in the middle after the initial Macintosh. And, uh, you know, Steve Jobs left. And only when he came back, you know, Apple became what it is today. Uh, if you look at Facebook, the original name wasn't even Facebook. It was called something else. I forget the name. But when it was in Harvard, it was called something else. And it developed into what it is now. So investors know companies are going to change and evolve. What they're looking for is the team. Is there any tension between the team? Is there any risk of political backstabbing between the team? Is the team experienced enough to take their hard-earned money and have a reasonable chance of making that hard-earned money into two, three, four, ten times more profit, right? Mm -hmm. Or will they just squander it and waste it? So I think those are the main things that the initial investors are looking for to see that because there's no product yet. There's no real anything. It's, it's that. Then in later stages, investors are looking for more of a market fit, market validation, efficiency of cost, monetary uh, responsibility, stuff like that. So have you built a product? Have you met your milestones? Has the market checked the box that they want that product, willing to pay for that product, you know, accepting that product? How are you managing your finances? How much are you being foolish or smart? All that kind of stuff. 
the higher you go, higher I mean by higher volume of uh, rounds, you know, 1 million, 5 million, 20 million rounds, the questions get harder and harder for the realistic reasons, and you need to prove more and more market fit and market validation. Totally. And that's really good insights to see from how you guys have grown. And even as a startup ourselves, we're in Series B right now. So um, there's a lot of lessons throughout the way and obviously different expectations as new investors come in where, you know, now in a more mature stage, we got to pay attention to more of the controls within the company, for example, and also how sustainable are we and how close are we to really finding that perfect product market fit? Yes. I know that you founded companies before, so maybe that's also helpful for you when approaching investors. But like, for example, for first-time founders, is there any advice that you'd give for them when it comes to securing your first round of fundraising? So I would say the first, it all depends who you do your first round of fundraising with. If you go to high net worth individuals, angels, which I believe are the perfect fit for a first round, it's not so much... You know, your have you had an exit? Because let's be honest, ninety-nine percent of startups fail. That's the or ninety-five percent of startups. That's the statistics. So it's not have you had an exit. It's how mature are are you, and how much confidence can you instill in that investor that you know what you're doing and you can get it done versus just you know waving your hands in the air, wanting to get a big fat check, and then going and buying yourself an Ferrari. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. And I think as startups mature, sometimes they do end up wasting a lot of the money. Like we see that a lot in, you know, some of the bigger startups, even at Silicon Valley, where even though they have all this funding, sometimes the way that they spend it is questionable. And obviously we won't name any names here, but that fiscal responsibility, you know, starting very early is such a good habit to get. I mean, you hear stories every day and you get reports, you know, from, you know, Crunchbase and CB Insights and all of those data companies. You get stories all the time about unicorns failing and about companies that raised hundreds of millions of dollars failing. And they were like in the most expensive offices ever, paying a million dollars a year rent or whatnot and bringing in all kinds of extravagant chefs to make lunch for the employees and whatever. All of that is great. I used to work as an employee in a company like that and I was sad when I had to go home because I had better, <laughs> better conditions at work. But at the end of the day, is that cost really needed and is that expense really worth it? And I think that's what many startups fail to understand or to do that evaluation, because when you have a lot of money in the bank that you think is going to stay, you know, be enough for three years, three years go back very quickly. If your sales haven't matured and your sales are not starting to bring in money to at least cover your expenses, then before you start spending lavishly, take a step back and uh, look at uh, uh, realistically your expenses, your real sales. Don't start spreading money like no tomorrow before you're profitable. And even then, be smart about how you do it. Absolutely. And with the earlier stage startup, you know, I can imagine that your team members will have to you know, wear many hats, right? You know, in regards to managing budgets. Yes. and the spending positions. Who actually holds the purse strings at Babelbark and how do you make the best decisions on investments to grow the company? So I do. Being a relatively early stage startup and only 16 employees, it's small enough to be able to be managed uh, from a financial perspective in that way. So we have a policy in place. And it's a very simple policy. Manage the money like it's your own money. That's it. If you need to fly somewhere, 
don't necessarily take, uh, you know, the easiest, most direct flight in the easiest hours. That might cost you a thousand bucks. Take a flight which is a little earlier in the day or a little later in the day or whatever, or with a layover, that might cost you only 250 So in the same way, you manage your own uh, finances, manage the finances for the company. We all work on Brex, you know, corporate card with Brex, the company Brex. Uh, which mm-hmm. is great, by the way. I highly recommend it for startups for different reasons, for all kinds of reasons. And I'm not their advocate. I mean, I, I can just tell you as a user, <laughs> right? But it's really, uh, really, really great. But it also allows you to centralize the analysis and oversight over the spending, including getting alerts for every dollar spent over a certain limit for a certain person. You can put limits for every employee. So some employees have a limit of $1,000. They can't spend more than that in a cycle. Some have $8,000. It depends on the job. It depends on the level of responsibility. But on a daily basis, you get a report and you see exactly who spent what. And in the rare occasions where there are question marks, That same day that that expense happened, you hit that person up with a question, you know, either call them up or send them an email and say, can you explain this expense? Why? And it's been my experience that once the employees know there's oversight and know you're going to ask them in real time, not because theoretically you told them, but because it happened. And, you know, every employee gets that phone call at least once that, hey, I just see, saw a charge come in on your card for X, Y, or Z. What was it for? It doesn't matter if it's a charge for five bucks or for 500 bucks. If it's a charge that raises a question mark, phone that employee in real time because all you need is that once phone call and then they all know because it spreads <laughs> like wildfire. They feel bad. Yeah. Not only that, but they know that you're keeping an eye on it and they can't get anything past you. And then... That sets the tone and it's, you know, you don't need to do anything else. You won't get into problematic situations if people will know in advance there's, you know, a guideline and a limit and you're watching. Yeah, making people feel responsible and that, you know, they also are a key member of the organization that contributes to what we call, you know, the spend culture, right? The attitudes and the mindset on why, you know, you want to make financial decisions on behalf of the company because really... Only when you make the right financial decisions can you actually scale. So it really takes every single team member to understand this. Exactly. I mean, it's like robbing Peter to pay Paul. I mean, the company has a certain amount of money in the bank. You can fly business and then I have to fire you in three months because I'll be out of budget, out of money. Or you can fly coach and then we have enough for six months. That's a simple analogy. (laughs) And in a small startup, people get it. They understand. Yeah. That's also going back to your point, right? Like that's why you hire for, you know, how they fit within the company and the culture too. That's the number one thing. Number one thing. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you, by the way. I'm just curious, how would you describe the current spend culture of Babel Bark as it stands right now, being a smaller team? And as a company grows, how do you think this will really change? And what processes will you have to change as a CEO? So I think at the moment, we are at the end of the cheap phase and the beginning of the responsible phase, okay? Like I gave the flight example. Don't fly when it's convenient. Fly when it's cheap. And if it means you're going to be sitting three hours in an airport in a layover, you know, tough luck. (laughs) Go sit three hours in a layover. And people understand that because of the stage we're at. As we go grow and move forward and have more money, then, you know, it becomes more of a responsible 
expense versus a cheap expense. By that right. I mean, take a direct flight, not necessarily the $1,200 one, you can take only the $900 one, but take a direct flight, don't, you know, bum out for three hours in a uh, airport, but have it in, in a layover, but, you know, take it direct. that's an example, right? But in the same analogy, other stuff as well. So the moment we use a certain level of Slack, we use a certain level of different platforms out there, right? And we sometimes we need to do workarounds because we have the cheaper version, right? That doesn't have all the features and all the tips and tricks. As we become more financially stable, then you can start using the higher end platforms that can give you a lot more and make your life more efficient, even though they're more expensive to use. Yeah, absolutely. I think it goes back to, you know, what you mentioned earlier in our conversation, you know, know why, you know, you're doing it, right? Knowing why, how it contributes to the company instead of just doing it just because it makes sense where you think it makes sense. Exactly. And that goes back to hiring because if you have a team that everybody understands what they're in for, if you have periodic meetings, we have a meeting every four weeks for all uh, employees where we put all the cards on the table. So people understand exactly where we are, what's working, what's not, what has, you know, need to be changed, what doesn't. So the whole team feels under the bearing the load, you know, together in, in one place. It's not like, oh, I'm in the back end. I have no idea what's going on in the front end and I don't care kind of stuff. So if you hire the right people and you treat them in that kind of way, as grown-ups, as responsible, the return is, you just can't, it's not even countable. And they'll grow with the company too, right? Like they can grow into key leadership roles that will take the company to the next level. Exactly. So this is more um, also on the people side of organizations. As a CEO and founder, when do you think is the right time to maybe bring in like a head of finance to lead the function of accounting and, you know, the strategic side of the finance strategy? I think it's when it's getting to be too big for me to handle myself. Because the finances is the CEO's responsibility. Even with a CFO, it's still the CEO's responsibility. So today I use automated tools like QuickBooks and others in order to manage the finances. The moment it becomes too much of a burden on other responsibilities, and I need to spend too much time on it, or it right gets now. to be too I would complex say that I cannot do it myself, right at the point then I need to hire somebody else who can do it. Maybe an outside bookkeeper, counsel, receiver, full-time CFO, money coming in, company, we have accounts payable, we have money going out. We have, you know, a lot of balance sheets. So we're using a CPA and all of that kind of stuff, but it's getting to a point where we need to bring somebody in to be more of a strategic financial thinker than just, you know, how I'm bookkeeping and CPA. And how do you think, um, you know, like a CFO role or a head of finance role can work well with the CEO to make sure that, you know, you guys are working together to make the right decisions? I go back to the uh, talent answer from uh, earlier. If you find the right person, if that CFO, because there's all types of CFOs out there, right? I've seen, you know, them, you know, people who are really connected to the vision of the company while people who are really connected to the books, so to speak. Yeah. Right? So it, it all depends on if you hire somebody who's lockstep with you in the vision of where the company is going in the process and the whole interview scheme is not going to be built around how do the numbers match up, but it's going to be built around where do you see the company going? What's the vision? How much are you lockstep with us and sharing the load to get to the vision versus just making sure the books are correct? Yes, they need to be correct, but you know, there's different ways to do it and you know where the emphasis is on growing the company or on uh, that kind of stuff so if you hire the right cfo based on that mindset and the cultural fit 
with the executive team and the company vision, you're going to be fine. But if you hire a CFO just because of his financial expertise and not necessarily because he's a good fit for the company, that's not going to work well. Because especially in the CFO position, the variety is so huge and people's mindsets are so huge from based on their background. If it's, I don't know, retail or software, if it's SaaS or it's it, uh, this or that, if it's, you know, subscription-based um, selling, you know, classic SaaS, or if it's one-time selling of a product. The whole mindset of the CFO about what the company needs to do and how and how it can needs to be designed is so very different from one to the other. You need to find the right fit. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's super good advice, too, for the accountants and upcoming, you know, CFOs that listen to this podcast, because I think a lot of times they think they need a lot of financial expertise to be able to, you know, sit in that role or to be able to work up to that role. But I think the more important thing is they have to be confident that, you know, hey, sometimes if you find the right team, if you find the right CEO to work with, they actually look at what you care more around your values and also how you fit with the company. So that's Really good advice. I think that they will really like hearing that. I'll give you an example of what I mean from a former mm-hmm. company. We had a CFO, obviously I'm not going to name names of company of people, but you know, in a former, former life, we had a CFO who was so fixated on making the numbers meet, balancing out and making sure we don't overspend in any particular quarter, mm-hmm. that it was like a daily fight between sales, marketing and development with him because he didn't have the vision of, okay, I'll take a hit and overspend against my budget in this specific quarter because it makes sense. I'll give development you know, one more tool or one more product or one more whatever that will then mm-hmm. get me way more down the road, but so I'm willing to kind of, you know, um, take a hit in this quarter versus long-term gain. He wasn't able to do that. He was like, I've got a budget. I've got to hit it. I can't go over it. And I don't care if people go home, but we're not going to be breaking that. But, and that's a different (laughs) CFO mentality, but that's exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, what kind of person is it and how much does they, do they not adapt, but buy into the long-term vision and what needs to happen in order to get to that vision. Yeah, I love that example. I think like um, you mentioned that really well, where it's balancing, obviously the controls, but also with like the agility, right? Like being able to adapt to the changes and the team culture. So that's a really good example. Hopefully um, the accountants who listen to this, they'll also think more forward <laughs> in regards to their roles. Yeah. So this is um, kind of like um, a more broad question. Within this economic climate, how are you currently readjusting your strategies to move forward past this downturn? Like, has it affected your company or you think it's not something to worry about right now? That's a very loaded question. And the reason is, from the business perspective, we have had more growth in the last 10 weeks since the COVID-19 hit in the East Coast in the U.S. than in Mm -hmm. all of 2019 combined. Wow. And that's a little bit uncomfortable to say in this day and age when people are struggling. So no matter how much I paint it, it comes out badly. And I'm not trying to be arrogant or anything else, but you know, in this day and age when everybody's in sheltered mode and closed down and everything, the need for tele-capabilities, tele-services, telemedicine, telehealth, tele-this, tele-that is the name of the game. And we're a company that provides all of that from remote connectivity to connected care to telemedicine to all the catchwords, right? So the growth has been exploding. On the flip side, 
Both from a personal perspective, I've been sheltered in home for now nearly two months. I'm in Boston. We've been locked up for nearly two months. And employees who, and, and you know, everybody's worried about their parents and, you know, their siblings and their friends and all, everything else. It's tough. Now, obviously, in this situation, also wallets shrink. So getting new investments potentially and uh, uh, getting people to pay for services is much, much harder. Even if they need them, they don't necessarily have the ability to spend for them. So we've taken a strategic approach where we said more than just a commercial company, we're also a social responsibility company. So we opened up the full platform totally for free both for the pet parents, pet businesses, and vets until the end of the COVID-19 emergency for as long as it takes. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, people use it for free. At the end of the period, you don't want to continue using it, don't. But, you know, take into account that, that you know, some will stay on, some will uh, drop. But it's about being part of the community. And I think that's a very important thing for every business because some businesses try to, you know, gauge prices and take advantage of a situation. And I'm saying, no, when you look at it from a long-term perspective, being part of the community is way more important than making another buck. Don't go bankrupt, Mm -hmm. but don't try to make a million dollars on the back of people who are suffering. Yeah, I love that. And I love what you guys are doing to help pet owners and pets throughout this difficult time. And I think it's so important to have that mentality where it's not about what you take, but it's about what you give back. And, you know, karma goes around, right? Like, you know, you're doing all these great things for the people around you. And eventually, I think you'll definitely see a lot of rewards regardless of where your company's at. Yep. Thank you. Yeah, that's really good advice, Roy. So this is like a very general question for new entrepreneurs. What are some good habits that a new entrepreneur can make to make sure that you're building a physically responsible and financially sustainable company while also, you know, building that amazing company culture that you mentioned earlier? So I would say first thing you need to do, there's one book, which I think is a must read for anybody in this area. And that's The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz, the famous Ben Horowitz from Horowitz Anderson. Anderson Mm -hmm. Horowitz. The book is about how to make the hard decisions about the really hard things that are emotional. So if you're a group of of founders, let's say four or five people or whatever, or or, or initial team, after you've started growing a little bit and getting a little bit of traction, you might find out that not everybody's a perfect fit. And even though that person might be a really, really good friend of yours, or you have a lot of connection to that person, You need to break it up and not always, uh, because you need to think about, you know, it's the hard thing to do and the really, really hard thing. So that's point number one. And that it's an amazing book and everybody needs to read it, I think. The second thing is, I go back to the financial basis. Build a budget, take into account every last detail. Don't just go with the big ticket items. Go down to the last smallest, you know, coffee cup and the half and half you need to put inside a coffee, right? (laughs) Then take a 20% buffer on top and then understand that whenever you think you need to raise money, you're wrong. You should have started three months earlier because it takes easily six to nine months to get to from start to close of any single round usually, if you're not lucky. So take that into account. And usually it means that the moment you close one raise, you immediately need to open another one. So the CFO is in continuous fundraising mode because that's the way to keep going. The third thing is, I go back to the talent perspective. Hire people that can do their job without you standing on top of them. Because your job is to raise money and keep the machine oiled. Their job 
is to be the machine that works. If you need to be on top of them 24-7 to make sure they do their work, if you need to be the kindergarten teacher that, you know, coordinates between three different executives who are fighting all day long, you won't have time and the mindset to do your own job. So hire correctly or find the right partners, not because they're friends of yours, but because you can work together and they have what it takes. And then understand that, you're going to have to make some really hard decisions along the way. Whatever you do, you're going to have to make some really hard decisions along the way, and you need to be able to stomach it and go through it, or you're not going to survive. Those are really, really succinct and amazing points, Roy. Like, I haven't read that book yet, but um, that's definitely going to be on my list now. I've heard some great things about that book. Thank you. Yeah. So I don't want to keep you for too long. Um but maybe if you wanted to end off with, you know, one thing that you wish you told yourself 10 years ago, and that could be the, you know, the last question I have for you. Buy Amazon stock. <laughs> <laughs> if I That's would have bought good. it te- 10 years ago, it was, I don't know, a dollar a unit. Now it's like over a thousand dollars a unit. Just think, I mean, buy Amazon stock. <laughs> That's so crazy. Like, that's the thing where, um, you know, looking back 10 years ago, some of the companies that we look up to right now weren't even born yet. So who knows? And that next time Apple was in bankruptcy. Yeah. Apple was that's bankrupt, that. right? Yeah. So you never know. Like even right now, a lot of companies are crash and burning. But also within this time, I feel like we're going to get a lot of really great innovations that are going to be setting the forefront of 10 years later. I'll tell you what's crazy. I live in Boston. I work in Boston. There's still people around here in the VC world that are proud of the fact that they said no to investing in Facebook and Twitter, which was started here in you know, Harvard and that kind of stuff. It's, it's like, how has that worked out for you? But it's, you know, 10 years ago, they would probably have made a different decision. Yeah. I mean, fair enough, right? They, they wouldn't have had the foresight. VCs think that they know what um, the market's going towards, but sometimes like, it, it's also luck too. It's all about luck. Look, at the end of the day, 1990, what, 5%, 99% of startups fail. You know, many of them funded by VCs. So VCs make bets that fail all the time. But, you know, the whole trick is to make the one bet that will, you know, make you enough to overshadow all the ones that failed. That's the name of the game. Totally. I bet, like, the first VC that invested in Zoom right now, he's pretty happy. Now oh, that yeah. Zoom's blown up. <laughs> yeah. No question. <laughs> And that's completely by luck. Who would have knew that, you know, COVID-19 would have hit? Right. It was just a simple, like, meeting room software. Now everybody's talking about it. Yeah. I mean, think about six months ago, what people were talking about investing in or even commercial real estate, the value of that. I'm pretty sure that three months from now, when many companies will go to at least partially work from home and commercial real estate will start shrinking, in need for commercial real estate offices will start shrinking, there's going to be many people out there that own tens of millions of dollars of real estate, and they'll be um, you know, pretty sad that they do because there won't be anything to do with them. Yeah, there's already a lot of empty offices in downtown Vancouver right now, I'm sure, like for Boston too, there's... A lot of, um, you know, shops that are closing down during this time. Yep. Well, thank you so much, Roy, for hopping on the call with me. I had a really good time chatting with you and learning a little bit more about, you know, your background and the learnings that you had throughout your career. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Danny. Thanks for tuning in on another episode of Spend Culture Stories. If you like this series, please support us by leaving us a positive review on iTunes or Stitcher. And be sure to subscribe so you can get notified of the newest episodes. We try to post every episode every Wednesday. 
This podcast is sponsored by Procurify, a software solution that is reinventing the way organizations spend. Procurify allows an accessible and convenient way to request for purchases, get approval from your manager, while allowing your finance team to get the visibility and control you need on every purchase. Learn more about Procurify at www.procurify.com.